From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The climate is changing, and so are attitudes. Among politicians, Al Gore leads the charge. He's training others to preach the gospel of global warming. I'm involved in a different kind of campaign. It's an effort to try to persuade people about why and how we must rise to the challenge, the most serious challenge our civilization's ever faced. Also, scientists and evangelical Christians put aside theories and theology, joining forces to raise awareness about climate change. It's not so important where the creation comes from, where Earth's vanishing biodiversity came from, as it is now to get together to save it. And turning livestock waste into a cash cow. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Democratic candidates are already jockeying for position in the 2008 presidential race, but not Al Gore. He says he's committed to a different kind of campaign, combating global climate change. Gore's documentary film, An Inconvenient Truth, created a sensation last year, and it may well pick up an Academy Award nomination this year. And now he's hoping to capitalize on the movie's momentum, recruiting an army of volunteers to take the message of his film into communities around the country. Living on Earth, Jeff Young recently caught up with Al Gore in Nashville, Tennessee, where the former vice president was rallying his troops. It's just before 8 in the morning, and some 200 people from around the country file into a conference room at the Hilton Hotel in downtown Nashville. They're coffeeed up and loaded down with handouts and books on climate science. Oh, and slides. Lots of slides. They're here to learn how to be Al Gore, or at least how to present Gore's strangely compelling slideshow on global warming. Uh, This is going to be the slideshow pretty much as I give it It changes and evolves over time. Unfortunately, the evidence has all pointed in the same direction. That direction leads to what Gore calls a climate crisis. He paces the room, pointing out how the slideshow's clever mix of images gets across complex ideas. Just behind him, Dr. Richard Alley strokes his beard and then speaks up. Alley, a climate scientist from Penn State University, makes sure the message stays true to the science. If Mr. Gore and I quibble about every, anything here, you should recognize the science of what you have just seen is remarkably solid. We can argue around the edges of everything, but the basic message is right. I could quibble with that, but basically, thank you. <laughs> Allie fields a question about how long different greenhouse gases persist in the atmosphere. And that leads to another question about emissions from industry versus those from agriculture. But one of the judgments that I've made as a result of all that is that it doesn't help us to talk too much about cow farting. (laughs) A little humor helps after hours of dire predictions of sea level rise, drought and flood. During a break, Gore sat down with me to explain why he thinks a thousand people giving a slideshow can help prevent those disasters. 
I'm giving them uh, my slides so they can present them in their voices, uh, connect them to their own passion for trying to, to save the uh, global environment. And the first two classes that I trained have already collectively given my slideshow more times as a group than I've been able to give it personally in 15 years. <laughs> so that's great. What is it that you want the people who get this message to do? What's more important, the personal uh, consumption choices about energy or the uh, political choices that they might make based on, say, uh, a candidate or a platform that, that addresses this issue? Well, I don't think they're separate. When people make – when they see the reality of it and reach a conclusion that this is a moral issue and we have to change – First of all, they want to make changes in, in their own relationship to the problem. But when people take personal actions, that leads inevitably to their desire to have changes in policies. They, they begin to communicate with their representatives at the local and state and national level and say, look, I've made these changes in my life. You know, I want you to <laughs> work for changes in policy. And uh, I think that they're linked together. Yeah, because I, I know at the end of the film, for example, when the credits were rolling, there are all these things you can do, which kind of gave it a uplifting spirit at the end. But I was wondering, you know, okay, I can drive a hybrid car, mass transit, use fluorescent bulbs instead of incandescent bulbs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what difference does it make if China is still going to build a coal-fired power plant a week? Well, <clears throat> the world as a whole must respond to this and will respond to it, but it's more likely to respond more quickly when the U.S. provides leadership and when enough American citizens become part of this new critical mass of opinion and the U.S. changes policy, then it becomes much more likely that China will make the changes it has to make, and we're, we're all in this together. Gore's trainees include some top scientists and policymakers and a smattering of celebrities. Actress Cameron Diaz was even here. But they're not all from latte-sipping blue state America. There are southern accents and western boots here, too. People who can talk about global warming in places where Al Gore might not get a very warm welcome. People like Gary Dunham, a retired advertising executive from Houston. I accompanied my wife to Washington, D.C. for a convention. She is an officer in the DAR. Uh, she had a lot of, of busy things to do. I had a lot of time on my hands, and I went to see Al Gore's movie. By the way, I didn't vote for him. I went as a skeptic and knocked me for a loop. I became a believer. The DAR, that's Daughters of the American Revolution. They're, they're like some radical out there left-wing group, right? <laughs> no, no, my wife wouldn't agree with that. Very patriotic group. Um, I, I actually put the program together for my wife to use with the DAR. I said, honey, I'm going to make you a program that's going to really get somebody's attention. And, uh, and we did. And that's where I first started giving the program was to DAR chapters. That's right. The Daughters of the American Revolution are getting the global warming message. And so will churchgoers in Prattville, Alabama, hunters in Imperial, Pennsylvania, and attention Walmart shoppers in Laramie, Wyoming. Christina Quick in iCare can also tell you about climate change. Uh, I'm an optician. I work for Walmart. So this is kind of a new experience for me. I'm jumping in kind of feet first and I'm 
common Joe kind of on the street. And I think it's a kind of a good thing because I think that I'm going to be able to go back and I'm going to be able to tell them something on a level that they're going to be able to understand. So I'm kind of excited about that. And uh, why does it matter so much to you? I mean, this has got to be uh, not so easy to do all this travel and take time out from your life and all that. Mainly, um, I mean, my youngest is two years old. And how can you be a good parent if you're contemplating leaving them a world that may not be anything to look at? There might not be much left. It's a point Gore returns to repeatedly in our conversation, the moral aspect of climate change. This really shouldn't be approached as a political issue. It has political dimensions. Some of the solutions require action within the political system. But ultimately, it's a moral issue. It's an ethical issue. It's almost a spiritual issue because it affects our survival. Who are we? What is our moral responsibility to those who come after us? And the issue of how we solve it, uh, how we can most effectively address it, uh, we should debate that and talk about it. But what should change is the efforts of uh, some who are intentionally trying to delay any reason debate by confusing the the scientific evidence with uh, by putting out smoke screens and sort of pseudo scientific studies. Uh, I want to see the the creation of a new political re- reality in America where the candidates in both political parties are competing among themselves to to carry that mantle and to to offer genuinely effective solutions that's really the change that's needed if i'm a uh, a politician listening to to you saying this i might say well why didn't he do more when he was was in office if this was such a, a passionate issue for him he had 8 years as vice president what what did he accomplish on climate change well it's a fair question and uh, i uh tried my best and i learned in the process that the opposition to the kind of dramatic changes that are needed is so deep and so ingrained that it may well be that the only way to bring about the kind of policy changes that are needed is to first of all bring about the changes in public opinion that make it possible for political leaders in both parties to do what's necessary. I'll give you an example. I went to Kyoto and helped to bring about the breakthrough that achieved the treaty there. But as vice president, when I brought that treaty back home to the United States, I could only convince one senator out of 100 to ratify it, the late Paul Wellstone. And it's not that the other uh, senators didn't care or weren't intelligent, uh, none of that. It's just that they looked at the state of opinion in their constituencies, in their home states, and what they found was a situation where they felt that it was sort of beyond the the pale, beyond the possibility to imagine <laughs> supporting something like that without suffering real electoral consequences. So one of the things I learned from that experience uh, had to do with the need to go to the grassroots level and change public opinion to the maximum extent possible. And the good news again is that these changes are beginning to take place. I hope they'll, they'll be speeded up uh, and uh, take place in time. I believe that they will. 
the training sessions are his effort to bring that about. But some see another possible use for this nationwide network. It'd certainly come in handy if someone wanted to mm, run for national political office. Should Al Gore run for president again? God, I hope so. If I could vote twice, I would. I absolutely think he should run for president again. I uh, would be ecstatic if he ran again. It's nice when somebody says uh, that they that they think that uh, about me, and I and I do appreciate that. But I do not have any plans or intentions or expectations of it. I, I've fallen out of love with politics. I'm not uh, uh, hungering to ever be a candidate again, and really uh, do not anticipate any circumstances in which I would be. Uh, but again, I'm involved in a different kind of campaign. It's an effort to try to persuade people about why and how we must rise to the challenge, the most serious challenge our civilization's ever faced. And that's the focus of my efforts. This month, Gore met his goal of training a 1,000 people to give his presentation. He leaves them with some 300 slides and a quote from Gandhi, "'Become the change you wish to see in the world.'" For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Nashville. Coming up, science and religion call a truce in the culture wars to avert an environmental apocalypse. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Al Gore is hardly the only major public figure devoting his energies to fighting climate change these days. In a few minutes, we'll hear about a new partnership between scientists and evangelical Christians on global warming. But first, we turn to Europe. This spring, the 27 nations of the European Union will consider an urgent call to action. The EU's executive body, the European Commission, has proposed a sweeping new energy plan. It's designed to fight climate change and reduce the region's dependence on imported fossil fuels. Among the goals, cutting greenhouse emissions by 20 percent below 1990 levels by the year 2020. European Union officials say if the plan is adopted, it will herald a new industrial revolution and make the region the most energy efficient place on Earth. Mark Mardell is the Europe editor for the BBC. He's on the line with us from Brussels. And Mark... From all accounts, this is an awfully ambitious proposal. Well, this is, as you say, incredibly ambitious, not only because of what it's aiming for, but also in its scope. There are nine documents. They run to well over a 1,000 pages, and they cover anything you can possibly think of that's to do with energy, whether it's to do with the way that electricity and oil companies are organised internally, how they're structured, down to how much electricity we should get in Europe from whether it's wind power or wave power or whatever, and also throwing nuclear into the bundle. So it covers everything. But until now, there's been no Europe-wide comprehensive plan. What's happened now is that they believe in climate change. People in Europe are completely persuaded that climate change is, is a real threat. And they're saying, well, clearly, this is something that we can do on a Europe-wide, global-wide scale. So that's why they've got the plan. What makes you or Europe think that they can do in 2020 what they haven't so far been able to do by 2012? That is, you know, meet the Kyoto goals or be on target to meet those goals. First of all, there is an acceptance, I think, in the European public that there is a problem and it has to be dealt with. It's a very different atmosphere to America, I think. But I think the bureaucrats would also say 
that the technological means are there to deal with this problem. In the past, I think people who said climate change had to be tackled, maybe they were thought of as people who were saying, well, you've got a bicycle everywhere, you, you know, you've got to find a, a way of uh, sticking a windmill in your garden and, and doing stuff like that, but we can't have the sort of modern industrial society we've got now. Now, I think that is changing. There are plans. I, I visited uh, the site of, of where the Germans are planning to build the first ever zero-emission coal-fired power station. There are increasing ways of using wind and wave and solar power that the EU at least sees can supply a real, real big part of the energy mix. And I think nuclear is coming back into fashion a bit. It isn't seen quite as dangerously as it once was. So I think people think that this is actually technologically achievable. That They also, I, I must say, in Europe, there's a sort of industrial purpose. They think that until they're told there's the money there, the people are willing to spend on it, then companies won't bother to develop it. They, they think this will also be a sort of industrial driver for Europe. It seems, Mark, that uh, this is not just about uh, global climate change and greenhouse gases, but it's also about energy security. The, the European nations are looking to the east where they get most of their uh, energy from Russia, and they're saying, hold it, we need to become more self-sufficient. I, and that is absolutely correct. Uh, absolutely. I mean, climate change is the major driver for this. But energy security is also there at the back of everybody's minds, just in, in the way that uh, Britain during wartime decided it had to be able to supply itself with food. Now some countries are saying for security reasons, you've got to be able to supply yourself with energy. But what it also does is, as you say, make people look at Russia and wonder what can be done. Uh, you might say not very much. Uh, but certainly the diplomats of the European Union are saying that we have to speak very loudly, very firmly with one voice. So they want stronger negotiating parameters so that they can tell Russia, look, don't turn the taps off. It's not acceptable. And you, in the end, will suffer if you do this. Mark, there are 27 EU member states um, and they have to approve this plan. I think, what is it, March? What are the prospects for that? I think the prospects are quite good in, in terms of the targets. So, yes, you're right, there are 27 countries, and they're each actually going to carry on having their own energy policy. They're not completely pooling sovereignty. They're not handing it over to the EU on this. They'll continue to make their own decisions about, say, the exact mix between nuclear and renewables and, and coal. But I think there is a fairly good chance they will come to an agreement at that big meeting in March. I think where you'll get a lot of opposition is the European Parliament. And the members of the European Parliament tend to be, how shall we say, a little bit idealist. They don't have the equivalent of a, an executive role so that they can afford to be speak from the bully pulpit, if you like. And I think a lot of them are going to say, this is too little, too late. And they will try to get those targets raised a little bit so that they are more ambitious, there are uh, more renewables, that the aim for getting rid of carbon emissions is more ambitious. You know, listening to you, I, I get the sense that Europe is really entering a, a new era and it's being driven by energy and, and climate change. Yeah, it is. But I think it's also being driven by politics. I think there is an awareness or at least as an acceptance, I should say, that climate change is real and it is the biggest danger facing the world in many ways. And that is a very, very strong awareness in the European public. It's a, almost a passion. But there's also politics, as I say in, in this. The politicians of the European Union know that the EU, on its 50th birthday year, isn't terribly popular. People think it spends a lot of time spending money on unnecessary things, on subsidising 
farms that don't exist, some people claim, on arguing about the minutiae of whether it should have a constitution or not. And they're looking for something that will make people say, ah, that's what the EU does. That's what it does for me. That's why it's worth having. And they've settled on energy as that sort of policy, uh, where they can persuade young people, young and old people, that the European Union can lead the way show America the way, and I think that's also something that frankly is popular in Europe, teaching the Americans a lesson doesn't go down badly in most European populations, that Europe can lead the way in dealing with a, a very real problem. Well, Mark, thank you very much. Thanks very much. Mark Mardell is Europe editor for the BBC in Brussels. Here in the U.S., climate change is creating a climate for change among groups that have been largely on opposite sides of the political divide. Scientists and evangelical Christians tend to have very different worldviews, but the urgent challenges posed by global warming now have some of the most eminent leaders in each camp talking and working together to save creation. This week they announced a coalition, a new effort to convince non-believing politicians and the public of the need to take immediate action on climate change. Among the leaders, Harvard biologist and Pulitzer Prize-winning author Edward O. Wilson, a deeply committed secular scientist, and the Reverend Joel Hunter, the pastor of an evangelical megachurch who last year was elected president of the Christian Coalition. They both join us from Washington. And uh, Professor Wilson, let's start with you. What's the goal of this collaboration? The goal of collaboration is to start uh, dialogue, as they say, to make friendships, to uh, reach uh, mutual understanding, and to recognize the uh, common ground of uh, concern over the environment, which affects everybody the same, regardless of religious belief, uh, political orientation, or whatever and uh, to recognize it together as uh, the major, very likely the, the, the major problem facing humanity. And we quickly realized uh, that uh, those of us from the science side, and then, of course, it's always been the case of, from the religious side, that there is a term that applies here, which is the creation. Uh, we feel that it's the obligation of the human species to uh, save the creation, or that, you know, which amounts to not destroying the creation any more than we already have been. And with that kind of uh, common goal uh, in mind, we have discovered that uh, we could not only find uh, uh, close agreement on the big issues, but also that we could be friends. R Reverend Hunter, did scientific thinking enter your mind when you were considering this? Of course. Um, Christians are, don't just keep their head in the Bible. Um, we believe in two books of truth. Uh, one, God wrote the Bible, and the other, God wrote in creation. And so uh, scientific knowledge is very important to us. And, uh, and, and, and this partnership is very uh, important also because, as it says in Scripture, we have an obligation to equip the saints for service. Um, and the scientists equip us with uh, information that they have that we don't have. Um, and we can equip them with uh, motivated people that can make a larger impact on society. And, of course, the greatest benefit uh, to this uh, emotionally is just the friendships that we're making. 
and the buildup of relationships because uh, at least for Christianity, our goal is uh, love. God is love. And so this has been a um, a, a happy um, side uh, benefit to this whole conversation and this whole project together. But the concept and the question and the controversy over climate change has been anything but a love fest. I mean, you know that. Uh, you had to step down as the president of the Christian Coalition, or at least you chose to step down over questions of climate change. That's correct. I, I, uh, I stepped, one of the reasons that I stepped away from being the president of the Christian Coalition is because they would not prioritize very important issues like this. Uh, but if we are to mature, we have to be able to form relationships with people who have differences. And so the Christian community needs to do that in order to accomplish God's will. Um, and I think that he kind of made it like that. I think this is part of uh, his um, uh, continuing maturing of his people. But could this divide the congregations themselves? I mean, you've got evangelical Christians who take a position very much opposite of yours. Well, initially it will divide. Uh, the question is always uh, how uh, diplomatic, how inclusive can leadership be uh, so that everybody understands that differences are not necessarily divisions. We, we like the fact that there are skeptics. It makes us be better at what we do. Um, it makes us improve uh, science builds on, on, on skepticism. I mean, it just you get sharper and sharper. Same thing with Christian maturity. So the division itself is, is or the, the difference itself is, is beneficial. Professor Wilson, you coined the term um, scientific humanist. I mean, you had a, a Southern Baptist background. You forsake the, the faith for science. And how do you reconcile the difference, that, that kind of leap of faith that, that religion requires, and science, cold, hard facts, things that are knowable, comprehensible, with something like religion, which is exactly the opposite? I don't uh, see the need to agree on all the fundamental uh, the issues, including the most fundamental it's not so important where uh, the creation comes from, where Earth's vanishing biodiversity came from, as it is now to get together to save it. I'm a committed uh, secularist, and I've never budged from that position. Uh, I was, on the other hand, uh, raised a Southern Baptist in the evangelical tradition. So I had a respect for it. Uh, for what it does for people, for the spiritual strength it gives them, and for the passion with which they address moral issues. I could realize that even though I don't believe in many of the tenets now, there's a huge area of overlap, of uh, recognition in what needs to be done for humanity and therefore grounds for uh, collaboration at a time when it is uh, most needed. Can this issue of climate change, of the loss of biodiversity, can it, has it become such a, an enormous issue that it perhaps is a, an epical uh, issue? It's so immense that it forces us to set aside our fundamental differences and come together. Are we seeing something historic here? Uh, it sure is. Uh, try uh, uh, once uh, roughly every 100 million years. That's how often catastrophic losses of uh, biodiversity of this nature have occurred. The last one was 65 million years ago, ended the age of dinosaurs, and that was now pretty certainly due to a meteorite, giant meteorite strike. Uh, the present one, which we're in the early stages of, unmistakably in the early stages of, 
uh, to the extent that we could easily lose half of the species of plants and animals on Earth by the end of the century is human-caused. And uh, you can't reason with a meteorite, uh, but you can certainly media, uh, reason with uh, human beings that are causing it. Therefore, this becomes a major uh, moral and practical, in addition to practical issue. And I think that the scientists have the role of producing the facts related to it. And we hope that the passion, the moral passion and dedication of uh, the religious uh, large majority of this country, for example, can be brought to bear as well. And the combination of those two is what may be required, I, because religion and science are the two most powerful social forces in the world. Well, in the United States, it seems Republican Democrats are pretty powerful forces as well. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering, uh, Reverend Hunter, um, does this uh, change the climate of politics in this country? Of course it will. Uh, anytime there's a, a major issue for the American public to face, um, politicians are going to have to determine how they're going to come down on it. Um, and they're going to have to determine how much emphasis they're going to put on it. Um, it's, it's yet to be seen exactly how that's going to play out, but this very definitely has political implications. Professor Wilson, want to thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. And Reverend Hunter, thank you. I'm honored to be on the program, especially with such an esteemed colleague. Biologist Edward O. Wilson is a university professor at Harvard. The Reverend Joel Hunter is the senior pastor at the Northland Church in Orlando, Florida, and a leader in the National Association of Evangelicals. They're part of a new effort to bring scientists and evangelical Christians together to educate Americans on the dangers of climate change. Ahead on Living on Earth, turning manure into energy and money. It's a gas. First, this note on emerging science from Megan Vigent. Layers of blotchy red flesh lie in the forest floor. A putrid odor rises, attracting swarms of carrion flies. The flies think it's an animal carcass, but it's not. It's a flower. It's called the Rafflesia, and it's the world's biggest and smelliest flower. The bizarre plant grows in Indonesia, and instead of a sweet smell, it mimics a dead animal to attract pollinating insects. It's always been thought to be something of an orphan, but researchers writing in the journal Science say they finally found the Rafflesia's true family. And it turns out one of its closest relatives is the beloved poinsettia. They're both members of the Euphorbacea, or Surge family which also includes such familiar favorites as Irish bells and rubber trees. Nailing down the exact lineage of the Rafflesia was a challenge for Harvard University plant biologist Charles Davis and his team. Plants can usually be identified by looking for molecular markers related to photosynthesis. But the Rafflesia doesn't photosynthesize. It's a parasite feeding on nutrients from nearby plants. So the researchers had to delve into its genome to find clues about its family. 
and it's an ancient family. The Rafflesia dates back to the days of the dinosaurs, making it one of the first flowers on Earth. While the dinos might be gone, this beastly flower is still stinking it up. <laughs> That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Megan Vigent. So what do you think about our show? Does it stink? Got an idea for a story? Let us know. Our email address is comments at loe.org. That's comments at loe.org. Our listener hotline is 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or sit right down and write us a letter at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. You're listening to Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Livestock on U.S. farms produce enough manure every year to fill a convoy of trucks stretching from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. Sure, it smells, but the bigger problems are air and water pollution and all the methane gas this waste releases. Methane from farms is a major contributor to global warming. But a growing number of farmers are helping to solve the problem. And in the process, they're turning their animals' manure into money. Living on Earth's Ashley O'Hearn reports. At 5 o'clock on a cold Vermont morning, even the cows don't seem too happy to be awake. Blue Spruce Dairy Farm in Bridport, Vermont, is home to 2,000 of these vocal ladies. They're huddled together in long pens, mooing, munching hay, and going to the bathroom to the tune of 35,000 gallons of pee and manure a day. Dealing with the waste of his large herd of Holsteins used to be a heavy burden for Earl Audette who co-owns Blue Spruce Farm with his two brothers. But things have changed. Poop and pee and water being reused. In 2005, Earl and his brothers installed an anaerobic digester to collect the manure and wastewater from his dairy barns and turn it into energy. Enough energy to meet all the farm's needs and power 400 Vermont homes to boot. Walking down the long concrete aisles of one of the barns, Audette points out where the alchemy of transforming poop to power begins. We've got these alley scrapers right here that run back and forth 24 hours a day. They're always scraping the floor, scraping the manure up, and it dumps it in the center of the barn. And the cows just have to kind of step over it? Yep. They just kind of step over it pretty naturally. You get some that aren't real smart about it for a while, they'll freak out and run around. From here, the manure and wastewater is pumped up the hill to another, noisier building, a barn-turned-power plant. Well, this right here is your digester itself, concrete box uh, with a concrete cover. You're standing on top of 12 feet of manure, and the top two feet is where the gases rise, and you capture the gases off from the top. Inside this big concrete box, bacteria is eating cow manure and wastewater and giving off methane gas, which is then burned on site in a generator to make electricity. Blue Spruce Farm used to pay $8,000 a month for electricity, but that bill has disappeared. Now, the power company is paying them $2,000 a month for the extra power they feed back into the grid. And there's one more way the anaerobic digester is saving Blue Spruce Farm money every month. This here is the separated manure. That's cow manure that's been through the digester. The other byproduct of the bacteria is a fine, feathery brown substance that can be used as bedding for the cows instead of traditional wood shavings. It's a lighter, fluffier product, and it doesn't have those wood chips that can act like slivers. I mean, if you were laying on slivers, we wouldn't like it. It's $7,500 per month in bedding Earl Audette doesn't have to buy anymore. The digester is making it possible to look beyond the next milk check. 
But for Audette, it's not just about the money. Authorities have been cracking down on manure runoff. Oh yeah, it's all about the environmental part of it all um, to begin with. It's the land management, nutrient management that is making it something that we have to look into as a large farm to keep Lake Champlain cleaner, keep the waterways cleaner. When nitrogen and phosphorus-rich manure is left in ponds or spread over fields, rain carries the nutrients to nearby water bodies, like Lake Champlain, creating dead zones where there's not enough oxygen for marine life to survive. There are now more than 140 dead zones worldwide, most of them the result of agricultural runoff. That's all in addition to livestock air emissions of ammonia and methane. Each year, manure from U.S. livestock is responsible for about 2 million metric tons of methane. And that's about 7% of the total anthropogenic methane emissions from the United States. Kurt Roos is head of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's AgStar program, which encourages sustainable practices with grants to green-thinking farmers, including Earl Audette. Roos says that as the industry grows, digesters are taking a bite out of the methane emissions from livestock waste. I've been doing this a long time, and we've seen enormous growth. When I first started this, there were only like 10 systems running. It's reduced about 70,000 metric tons already. The number of anaerobic digesters has more than doubled in the last two years. Around the country, about 120 digesters produce enough electricity for 25,000 homes. Harnessing cow methane is a growing industry with a lot of potential, and it's attracting a new kind of business. Call them methane middlemen, cow poop capitalists, people who don't farm. Instead, they buy up the rights to farmers' manure and sell the energy. We will do all the engineering work, scout, you know, scout out the location, uh, we'll have all documentation in place and negotiate in to, to sell the energy, whether that's with the local uh, gas or electric utility or some other end user. Albert Morales is the executive vice president of the Environmental Power Corporation, a $60 million publicly traded company. Right now we're focusing on larger scale facilities. Uh, in Texas we are developing a um, large scale facility that will process the manure from about 10,000 cows. I would question whether that's even a farm or not. Ken Midkiff is the Sierra Club Conservation Chair for Missouri. My guess is that the animals, uh, the cows in this case, Holsteins probably, are uh, kept uh, on concrete uh, where the manure and the feces and the urine are easily collected. Uh, chances are those are going into an anaerobic. Is that a farm? I mean, you know, it sounds like a factory to me. It sounds like an industrial process. The Sierra Club opposes anything that might encourage what some call factory farms, even though the digesters lower methane emissions and dead zone causing runoff. A recent study by the EPA says 7,000 more farms in the U.S. could install digesters. And if they did, it would reduce their methane emissions by 60 percent and supply power for 630,000 more homes. Not the solution to the whole energy picture, perhaps, but a big part of the cow pie. For Living on Earth, I'm Ashley Ahern in Bridport, Vermont. Most of us, out of sight, out of mind, toss it away, and it's gone. But imagine what really happens to all that trash that the world throws away. 
As we come over a rise, my first glimpse of Payatas is hallucinatory, a great smoky gray mass that towers above the trees and shanties creeping up to its edge. On the rounded summit, a tiny backhoe crawls along a contour, seeming to float in the sky. That's Matthew Power, writing about a place called Payatas. It's just outside Manila, the capital city of the Philippines. It's a gargantuan mountain of garbage. As we approach, shapes and colors emerge out of the gray. What at first seemed to be flocks of seagulls spiraling upward reveal themselves to be cyclones of plastic bags. The huge hill itself appears to shimmer in the heat. And then its surface resolves into a slow-moving mass of people, hundreds of them scuttling like termites over a mound. From this distance, Payatas displays a terrible beauty, inspiring an amoral wonder at the sheer scale and collective will that built it from the accumulated detritus of millions of lives. Matthew Power is a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine, and his recent article, The Magic Mountain, Trickle-Down Economics in a Philippine Garbage Dump, is a riveting journey into a world that few of us can imagine, but that millions of people actually inhabit. It's the world of garbage pickers, people who make their living scouring through the trash that their countrymen toss out. The residents of Piatas, says Matthew Power, are much like those you'll find in shanty towns throughout the developing world. Largely, they're, they're people that have migrated from other parts of the Philippines, um, the sort of rural hinterlands of the Philippine island group. Uh, are incredibly poor. So a lot of people from the countryside, and this is a global phenomenon, a lot of people from the Philippine countryside have moved to the boundaries and the perimeters of the larger urban areas. And uh, one of the most plausible means of making a living that they've found is is to work these enormous garbage dumps. And this hell heap uh, piatus is better than where they came from? In a lot of ways. You can actually make, you know, in a given day, they're called uh, mangangalahigs, the scavengers, that's the the word in Filipino. Um, on a given day, you can make about twice the, the national mean income by scavenging through the trash for recyclables. But they don't only work on this dump, they live next to it. Yeah, there is a, a large shanty town that's been built up around it, and that was actually the, the reason I first went to Payatas was because of this disaster that happened in 2000 was... Um, a section of the dump collapsed and killed 300 people in uh, in one of the shanty towns that had been built up on the edge of the dump. Uh, this mountain of garbage at Payatas must be incredibly toxic. The way you describe it, this stuff oozing out of the ground. Yeah, it's a real problem. Uh, I mean, one of the things is because Payatas originally 30 years ago was started as an illegal dump site, it was essentially just a, a, a ravine that people started dumping garbage in, and it um, metastasized into this enormous mountain of garbage. Uh, so it's never had a liner like a proper garbage dump is supposed to have to keep all the leachate, which is this chemical distillate of all the different things that are in the garbage, uh, from leaking out. So you have this problem that that just spreads out into the waterways and flows directly into the Pasig River, which is the main sort of waterway that runs through Metro Manila. There's um, all sorts of health issues. Um, now in Payatas, the city is trying to fix a lot of these things, but it's a huge effort to try and change this site that's been going downhill like this for 30 years. There's no way to, to move the entire dump of Payatas and, and, uh, and put it somewhere else. I, I talked to an engineer who said it would take 3,000 trucks a day, 11 years, to move all the garbage that's already there. 
What did it smell like, this mountain of trash? It's funny. You actually be- you begin to get acclimatized to it relatively fast. I-, I mean, it smells terrible. You can imagine you're in the tropics, so it's very humid. It rains a lot, and um, you're standing on a 150-foot-high pile of putrescent garbage. So, you know, there's food rotting. There's there's also there's a lot of burning. Um, so uh, there's a lot of plastic burnt smoke in the air, which is also incredibly toxic. It's filled with dioxin. So it smells terrible. I, I, I think if you, you know, if you left your garbage out in the sun for a week and then um, stuck your head inside the bag, you'd, you'd get a good sense. But as, uh, by the same token, you actually kind of get used to it after a few days. Well, you write about Manila being this sprawling megalopolis that's dumping 7,000 tons of debris every day in these dumps. And that this is no not unique to Manila, that this is a global problem. Uh, yeah, that that's a, a global phenomenon. You know, in, in at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, 2% of the world lived in cities. And this year, it's, it's going to be 50%. And the estimate is that by uh, 2050, actually 80% of the world will, will live in these urban areas. And half of that uh, will be slums. Um, slums like... Payatas and uh, Lagos, Nigeria, Mexico City, Cairo, Mumbai, which I, I lived in India for a year. And uh, there's a slum on the outskirts of Mumbai called uh, Dharavi, which has a million people living in a, a square mile. These type of communities that are you know, surrounding these dumps, they seem to be serving a, a useful function for the rest of us. Uh, yeah, well, I, I spoke to one... Um, one sociologist who had done a, a extensive study on the scavengers in Manila, and the statistic he came up with was that they were actually pulling 25% of the, the daily household waste out of the waste stream and into recycling. So they're actually serving an incredibly important economic and ecological niche. They're you know, taking almost all the usable plastics, all the usable metals. They were pulling out parts of computers and, and reusing them. There's a, a whole mini industry of, of recycling Pentium chips and printer cartridges, which printer cartridges are like the diamonds uh, that are scattered about inside this garbage. Like if you find one, that's the best day because you can sell them for something on the order of 5 or $6 a piece. And that represents what percentage of their daily income? Oh, that would be about twice what you would make on a normal day. So these people are like bottom feeders, in a sense. They're, they're serving a social function. So, and if they close these dumps or put them off limits to these scavengers, what would happen to them? And, and I guess what would happen to us? Well, one of the problems when they closed Payatas for a few months was that garbage piled up all over the city. They simply didn't have anywhere else to bring it. Uh, if you put these dumps further out in the countryside, the scavenger community will follow the garbage. It's like a gold rush. They'll, they'll follow it wherever it goes. So the society is pretty resilient, and, and they're, very, they're very good at figuring out what they can do to survive, which is a phenomenon that, that's kind of across the entire ecology of slums all over the world. I mean, there's this tendency, I think, to turn them into these UNICEF posters of, of something to be pitied. But what I came away from there with was this real sense of human endurance and the ability to to survive and, and still lead a happy life. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have the opportunities to make things better for themselves, but uh, I think that 
by just pitying them, you deny them this sort of agency to, to make something of their lives. And when they're allowed to sort of organize themselves and helped with organizing themselves, um, they actually can do really amazing things and, and be a big part of, you know, a, a, a ecological mentality. You know, a lot of them are starting to see themselves as recyclers and as understanding that they're actually doing a good thing, which empowers them to, you know, demand better standards of living uh, for themselves. So I think the best thing to do is to, to create a policy where you're legitimizing these people and, and giving them a real role and some sort of dignity out of making an actual job out of this and, and adding health standards and adding some sort of security and not allowing children to do it, which is actually what's beginning to happen at Payatis. The, the minimum age uh, is 14 years old. Now, there's definitely some kids who, who sneak in and work, but they, they are actually trying to keep the youngest children from the dump itself. Matthew Power is a contributing editor to Harper's Magazine. His article, The Magic Mountain, appears in a recent issue of the magazine. Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you. Next week on Living on Earth, an Australian court says coal companies must consider climate change in their production plans. Industry officials say the ruling puts the whole country between a rock and a hard place. All of our activities, all of our businesses produce greenhouse gases. So where do you draw the line? Is it just coal exports or are we going right down the chain to the building of your suburban home? The next installment of our series Generating Controversy, The Changing Climate of Coal, next week on Living on Earth. Double, double toil and trouble. We leave you this week with some mud cauldron bubbles. In Yellowstone National Park's geothermally active landscape, volcanic mud pots put on quite a spectacle as they stew their soupy goop at a temperature close to 200 degrees Fahrenheit. John Arbenham recorded the glurps, gloops, and glubs of this bubbly boiler in Mammoth, Wyoming. It's known as the artist paint pot. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doherty and Megan Vigent. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Excuse me. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Park Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676.
PRI Public Radio International.